Friends, today we begin a new sermon series, a new fall series based on Genesis chapters 1 through 12, entitled Living with Love and Loss. Genesis is a book about origins, the origins of ours and other universes, the origins of the human race and of Israel, God's chosen people. So the iconic words, in the beginning, God created, seem most appropriate. One of the writer's purposes in this first chapter is to refute the claims of pagan neighbors and their rival creation accounts, some of which were written earlier. For example, the Babylonian epic entitled Enuma Elish, meaning when above, the first two words of the poem. Now, scholars date Enuma Elish to the first Babylonian dynasty, which ran from 1894 to 1595 BC, centuries before Moses ever lived, to whom some attribute the writing of the book of Genesis. While the Enuma Elish mentions numerous Babylonian gods and goddesses by name, it praises the god Marduk in particular as the champion of the gods, of all the Babylonian gods, and the creator of heaven and earth. And though it teaches about creation, its key purpose is really to offer reasons for Marduk's ascendancy to the supreme rulership over the whole pantheon of Babylonian deities and also to support the city of Babylon's claim to preeminence above all the other cities in the Babylonian empire. So I want to begin the sermon. We're, believe me, we're going to get to Genesis, but before we do, I want to briefly summarize the Enuma Elish. It tells readers that before the creation of the heavens and the earth, nothing existed except water. There was a freshwater god, Apsu, and the saltwater goddess, Tiamat. They came together as a couple, mingled their waters, and produced a first son, Mamu, who was imaged as a mist rising from the two bodies of water. Apsu and Tiamat later mingled their waters further and gave birth to other divine children, who subsequently gave birth to other generations of gods and goddesses. Now, one of these great-grandchildren was Enki, a god of exceptional wisdom and strength, god of the subterranean freshwaters, and also the god of magic. He was without rival among the gods. Remember the name Enki. Now, these younger gods, like unruly teenagers playing their loud music, disturbed the peace and quiet and certainly the sleep of their older grandparents and great-grandparents, Apsu and Tiamat. Apsu, the father god and one of the two creators, decided to solve the problem by destroying these noisy, unruly, younger gods and goddesses. Tiamat, the mother god, strenuously objected to this horrid plan of her husband, but was unable to get Apsu to change his mind. Now, when the word leaked out to the other gods and goddesses about the murderous intent of Apsu, Enki, remember the god of magic, made a magic circle around the gods as a protective covering, and then he recited a spell over Apsu, the father god, while he slept and killed him. Enki and his wife Damkina eventually begat Marduk, the wisest of the gods. 
Now, as time went on, Tiamat was deeply disturbed when she thought about the violent death of her husband, Apsu, and to avenge her spouse's death, she organized a small group of rebel gods to oppose Enki and the younger generation of gods and goddesses. To defend the younger gods, Enki summoned his son Marduk and asked him to rescue them. Marduk agreed to fight for this younger generation of gods, but demanded a high price in return. Supreme and undisputed authority over all of the gods. And they agreed. Marduk then defeated Tiamat in battle and afterwards cut her body into two parts. With one half, he formed the heavens, with the other half, the earth. Marduk then ordered the imprisonment of the gods who joined in Tiamat's coalition so that they might slavishly serve the victors, the victor gods and goddesses. And after those gods complained bitterly about that sort of slavish service, Marduk then killed Kingu, one of the leaders of the captive gods who had that by that time had married Tiamat to become her second husband. Marduk then severed Kingu's arteries and used his blood to create humankind. And Marduk gave humankind the status of slaves and transferred the burden that the rebel gods had earlier of serving, of feeding the whole host of Babylonian deities. He transferred that responsibility from those uh, opponent gods that, that joined in Tiamat's coalition he relieved them of that slavish service and gave that uh, humble service to human beings. And, and with it, the responsibility of feeding the host again, as I said, a Babylonian deity. So that's a summary of the Babylonian creation epic, Enuma Elish. Now let's hear the biblical account from Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 25. As Steve Frary reads the text for us, Look for differences between the account in Genesis chapter 1 as compared with what I just shared with you from the Enuma Elish. The scripture this morning is Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 25 from the New Revised Standard Version. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Then God said, Let there be a dome in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the dome and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome. And it was so. God called the dome sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, 
and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with the seed in it. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind, and trees of every kind bearing fruit with the seed in it. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. God set them in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. So God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves of every kind with which the waters swarm and every winged bird of every kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things and wild animals of the earth of every kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind and the cattle every kind and everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind. And God saw that it was good. The word of the Lord. Now in the Babylonian account, let's, let's compare these two creation stories. In the Babylonian epic, everything starts with the story of the origins of the gods themselves. And these gods, like Apsu and Tiamat, are part of creation themselves. In this case, they are manifest by fresh water. That's Apsu and Tiamat. Uh, she's the salt water goddess, respectively. In Genesis, God is just there. We're told nothing about God's family tree or anything about God's background. Now, John Calvin, our 16th century forebearer, was not known as a teller of jokes, but this is the one joke that has ever been attributed to Calvin. This is what he wrote in his Institutes of the Christian Religion. When a certain shameless fellow mockingly asked a pious old man, what God did before the creation of the world, the old man aptly countered that God had been building hell for the curious.
<laughs> so Calvin was warning against speculating beyond what the Bible reveals to us. In other words, we know nothing about God as God is in God's own self, or very little about that. What we know is what God has revealed to us through creation and in special revelation. Now, in the Babylonian story, the creation of the heaven and the earth is the result of a war between the gods. In the biblical story, there's only one God, and this God stands outside and above nature and the created order. The God of the Bible is not imaged by anything in creation. Well, by human beings, well, Tim Stafford will talk about that next week, but, but that God transcends the created order, what we can see and touch. Though creation itself points to God's goodness, power, and beauty. Now, in Genesis, there is one single rule, will, which rules everything. God's power is so great that God simply speaks creation into being, like a general giving orders, and all of creation rests in the sovereign decision of the one living and true God. Now, in the Babylonian story, water is the primal generative force. And the saltwater goddess Tiamat is portrayed as a huge sea monster, actually a pretty scary sea monster. In Genesis, uh, God wills and the waters obey. In verse 21, in fact, of Genesis, we learn that, quote, sea monsters are about one of God's many creatures. For the Babylonians, the planets were also gods who had their own names, personalities, and wills. Genesis speaks of the sun and moon as lights or lamps, devoid of any personal traits. Now, according to Genesis, how does God go about the work of creation? Uh, so we've let me just pause for a minute. So we've seen some key differences between the account in Enuma Elish and Genesis chapter one. Now let's go deeper into Genesis chapter one about and exploring God's work as creator. So God brings all things into being as a skilled craftsperson, according to the text that Steve just read for us. In today's text, we read about three separations. The first day, God creates light and separates it from darkness, day and night, establishing the means of measuring time. On day two, God separates the dome, that is the sky, from the waters below. The third day, God separates the water from the land. It is also on this third day that God creates plant life. Did you know that there are more than three million different types of plants. One illustration of God's creative artistry is the golden polypody fern, common in tropical areas. A typical fern of this variety produces seven new fronds a year. Each frond produces 25 leaflets. Each leaflet bears approximately 100 sori. A sorus is a spore case. This all adds up to 17,500 spores, each of which is a potential plant. And all of this comes from a single fern each year. On the fourth day, God created the heavenly bodies, stars and plants. 
Now, the Babylonians and many surrounding cultures viewed the stars and planets as gods. In Genesis, they're just part of the created order, like the animals and the plants. Sometimes we forget about the enormity of God's creation. A ray of light travels, we know, at 186,000 miles per second, so that at that speed you could get to the moon from Earth in one and a half seconds. If you kept going, you'd reach Venus in two minutes and 18 seconds, because it's a mere 26 million miles away, four and a half minutes and you'd pass Mercury 50, 50 miles away, 50 million miles away. <laughs> Mars is a little closer, but you have Jupiter 367 million miles away, and then Saturn twice as far as that. Eventually, you'd get to Uranus, Neptune, and finally Pluto, if you consider Pluto still a planet, which many don't, 2.7 billion miles away. But when you get that far, you haven't left this solar system. There is a star out beyond our solar system called Betelgeuse, which is 880 quadrillion miles from us and has a diameter larger than the Earth's orbit. And who knows what's beyond that? In Genesis chapter 1, we meet the transcendent creator of all things, who Jesus teaches us is also imminent, who is near and caring, so near that we can address God in prayer as our dear Papa. On to the fifth day of creation, God brought forth sea life of all kinds into being, including the great sea monsters, i.e. Tiamat. <laughs> God also created birds on day five. A friend of mine is a bird watcher and in one single trip to the United Kingdom spotted 142 different species of birds, 92 of which were new to him. On the sixth and final day of creation, God created various sorts of land animals, cattle and creeping things and wild animals of the earth of every kind, and God saw that it was good. And as the finale of God's generative work, God creates humankind, which we'll hear more about next week from Tim Stafford. Think for a moment then about the beauty, goodness, and wonder of creation in terms, for example, of the power of smell. A moth stumbles across one tiny molecule of a chemical called a pheromone emitted by a mate three miles away and will not eat or rest until he finds the partner who tantalizes him. One molecule of her scent has given him sufficient data with which to track her down. Consider a salmon who leaves its home in a river in Northern California as a tiny fingerling and voyages far into the Pacific Ocean, perhaps thousands of miles from home, without any visual signposts, with no other aids other than its sense of smell, this adult salmon finds its way back up that very stream to the same exact place of its birth to spawn and leave its own eggs. Consider the bloodhound. A detective holds a, a sock or a handkerchief before the dog's quivering nose. He sniffs, picking up a variety of odors. Deep inside the bloodhound's brain, the scent of a man emerges and the dog beats a trail through bushes, across streets, wherever the odor leads until he finds the man, sometimes even a week after the scent has been left. 
What does this account of God's good, beautiful, and wondrous creation mean for us today? Suppose I took you into a room and there showed you the most remarkable computer known to humankind. It utilizes the most sophisticated hardware and software. It has the capacity to compute, receive data, retrieve and distribute information at incredible speeds. You're amazed at the capabilities of this machine. But if you think about it, you become even more interested in meeting the team of experts who designed and built this computer because of the skill, the intelligence, creativity, and expertise of its creators. The computer itself tells an intriguing story about them and those various skills. In the same way, the goodness, beauty, and wonder of creation ought to excite our interest to know more about the single divine engineer who brought our universe into being and sent Christ Jesus into the world to redeem us, the one whom Genesis chapter 1 simply calls God. May we respond to the goodness, beauty, and wonder of creation by trusting, praising, loving, and serving our Creator, the Triune God. Amen.